let me tell you a story. So when I was 19 years old, I checked into this mental institution. It was my first such visit to a locked unit, which is one where you are unable to leave. Uh, there was a strong door secured with some kind of electromagnet. And when it shut behind you, you felt it. Now, like I said, I checked in. I didn't get dragged there by the cops, though people often were. I volunteered for this assignment. Why, you ask? Um, well, it's hard to remember because 19 years ago was exactly half of my life. But I'll say this. I believe it started with a girl. I was upset that I had been with some girl and then I found myself no longer with this girl. I will say this. I do not remember which girl this was. It was surely one of two specific girls, though I do have a vague recollection of yet a third girl rejecting my advances at around this time, though I don't think that would have been enough to send me over the edge. So it had to be one of these two girls that I used to run around with when my age ended in the word teen. So that blew up in my face. Uh, and knowing no other solution for adversity in life at that time, I set to drinking. My folks were separated back then, and I was living in my dad's basement. So I created a bar in my basement. Brian's Bar. There was a sign that said that. There was even some of that promotional accoutrement that real bars get from beer companies. Like um, I had that hanging piece of wooden keg from Miller, as I recall, and one of those framed mirrored signs for Budweiser, maybe. So I would just have people over there to the basement to get smashed on a regular basis. This was shortly after 9-11 and it felt much like the world was ending, even though people weren't going around saying that, really, which seems funny in light of the supposed actual apocalypse we find ourselves in today, but that's neither here nor there. But there was something comforting about having that little Brian's Bar community in that basement. Uh, people passing out or throwing up as the need arose. It was glamorous. It was all very glamorous. But I am a drunk. Uh, first and foremost, I have alcoholism. So this, uh, Brian's Bar, which was not my first entrepreneurial endeavor, it failed. Much like um, all of my prior entrepreneurial endeavors had. So this bar failed in the form of an eviction by the landowner. Here's how it went down. Early one Sunday morning, my dad opened the door to my room down there in the basement and I recall vividly he had to kind of force the door open because there were so many empty beer cans uh, on the ground that they were kind of jammed under and preventing the door from moving like it should ordinarily do. And fuck, he was pissed off. He released a substantial measure of his R. Lee Ermy style drill sergeant extreme prejudice upon me and some other miscreants who were present and trying to take refuge in a hungover sleep at that moment. Basically, he threw me out on my ass. Fortunately, I was at that time the owner of a pristine 1986 Cadillac Fleetwood Brome, Midnight Blue. That's me. Less than 100K on the odometer. 
a car that felt like it could transport me to whatever dream I sought. So I jumped in and drove from Massachusetts to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Uh, And curiously, I gave up the drinking for a bit, basically just to spite my dad, to show him, you know. I mean, he wasn't looking, but somehow, yeah, to show him. Now, uh, despite that moment of lucidity, my memory um, uh, of this era gets somewhat hazy after this. I came back to Massachusetts when uh, I kind of worn out my welcome in Washington, D.C. I was couch hopping for a bit. And yeah, I was sober somehow. But in sobriety, you know, I found myself getting quite a bit crazier. Now, what does that mean? Well, that girl situation was really bringing me down. I I know that I started having obsessive thoughts about it. I suppose I started having pretty penetrating negative thoughts in general. And I was really stretching my money at that time because um, I was not employed. No. And why would a 19-year-old who is not enrolled in college not be employed? I don't know. Um... I guess in retrospect, I would blame Napster, which had come out a few years before this and and taken the youth culture by storm. Um, Like one week we were just saving up our money to buy the next CD, like an Eminem CD or a Jay-Z CD. and, And fucking the next week we were just downloading as many of those CDs as we wanted for free. Why is that important? Well, I think psychologically on some level, I expected technology was going to create a society where I could just digitally pilot, I'm sorry, digitally pirate whatever I needed to live. Like I I could get on Usenet um, and find some URL that was going to allow me to download my shelter and food and clothing. I think that seemed possible in the year 2001, even, even if that seeming was exclusively subconscious, but it did not work out. Um, and yeah, I got crazier and God, I'll be honest. I got so sad. Um, and I was not eating at this time very much. And I got creepy skinny and I had a big sketchy beard and I wore one of those knit ski caps around Um, I was a a freak of human nature at this time. I looked like a less attractive version of um, Luke Wilson in the Royal Tenenbaums before, you know, he he does what he does. Um, And I got sad about the couch hopping. Um, I got the feeling maybe people didn't want me around. And you know what? I still think that. (laughs) And I know for a fact, in some cases, they did not want me around. And now... um, at this point in 2021, I feel those people were, were quite right to not want me around because undeniably I was a very sick person. So I started living in that Cadillac. Um, I am a short man, so it was not hard. Uh, big plush bench seats. I'd stretch out across. Um, that part wasn't bad, right? But it was Massachusetts in the winter. So it was cold and it was lonely. And sometimes, you know, I would do real crazy shit. I'm not sure why. I'd park that car on the street, maybe just like a block away from a close friend's house or my sister's apartment. And I would sleep in the car and um, they would have no idea that I was even there. And they probably would have taken me in if they had known. 
but I was, I was too crazy. Um, I can't really reflect on this behavior and explain to you uh, why it seemed reasoned to me at the time. I was living like a, a rabid animal at this time, a rabid animal with some measure of human agency. So then it got serious um, because I started feeling like I wanted to end my life. Now, a person who feels that way, they cannot choose to just cease feeling that way. Um, it doesn't matter how smart they are or how introspective or capable. Um, once that feeling literally squeezes you in its grip, you have no power to fight it. Everybody knows, um, or should know, that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But the truth of that aphorism will not save you when you find yourself in that particular jackpot. So all you can really do is get help um, if you're willing. And that, that's a, a, a key to it, you know. Um, and it's hard because in your head, you don't feel like help will do anything for you. Um, it's, it's not so much that you're resistant to it. It's just that you can't possibly, um, believe that, that any sort of available help would change your mind about this. But, um, you have to reach inside yourself despite being in that desperate vice grip and find some ounce of faith to invest in the idea that your problem can be treated. So that is what I did. I checked into the Westwood Lodge Hospital in Westwood, Massachusetts, a certified nuthouse, literally licensed and all that. But we'll come back to that. Uh, why are we even talking about this on the Cat Sounds podcast? Well, teenagers, like I was back then, are in the news this week. Um, and I'll say this. Uh, my experience in the mental institution does not haunt me today. I almost never think of it. I've done my share of time in rehabs since then, mostly in my 20s, but a lot of people have done that. I, I go out in the world today, and I walk around and have a life, and I pretend um, even to have a career or the beginnings of one. Um, and people do not say to me, hey, that's that fucking insane asylum guy. That is not my life. That is not the story of my life. Because almost nobody in my life today knows this story about me. And even the people in my life from back then, I, I have no doubt, have largely forgotten about it. If there's any record of it anywhere, other than maybe, um, you know, receipts that my health insurance made a series of payments at that time, I'd be shocked if anything exists. Uh, even whatever notes might have been taken about me in the mental asylum are shredded at this point. I have the right to enjoy that situation because my case was not an especially interesting one. I am not a famous person, nor was there any aspect of my situation that had enough innate notoriety to it to turn me into uh, temporarily a news story. But that reality is not true for everybody. This week, our favorite here at the Cat Sounds podcast, the New York Times published a story entitled... A racial slur, a viral video, and a reckoning. That's my news voice. Um, now, you read this story, and the narrative basically is this. In 2016, some random, uh, unfamous white girl in Virginia got her learner's permit, uh, a 15-year-old. And so she gets her learner's permit, 
and she posted a video to Snapchat or a snap to a friend. I'm not sure. I, I don't use Snapchat, so I don't really know how it works. But anyway, um, in the video, this girl used the N-word. She used it uh, colloquially, you might say, in the way that rappers do, except um, it, it should be clear. She put an especially hard R on that word. Um, yeah, I've heard I've heard this story discussed a few places, and it's not clear from the time story that that she that she did end the word in an R. But I have seen the video and I, I assure you uh, it, it's very jarring to hear Um now, doing this is a dumbass choice. I promise you, uh, white kids should have the sense not to do that. Um, but as any white person born after like 1980 can tell you, many white kids do this. They, they do it completely without prejudice or racism, even though many of them may say that word with prejudice and with racism. There are many, many white kids who go around saying it with an absence of prejudice or racism. They, they only say it because, um, that's how they hear rappers say it. They, they hear rappers talk like that. Um, and this is a really tricky thing. Imagine yourself, um, put yourself in the shoes of, imagine yourself being a a non-racist white kid today. Imagine you are this, uh, non-racist, ordinary Caucasian child, teenager. Um, and there's this terrible word, hands down the most culturally inappropriate word in America to use. Um, it is, it is every bit a forbidden word. And and so imagine you're, you're this person and, and that sounds okay to you. Um, because like I said, this hy- hypothetical kid is, is a non-racist. You don't feel yourself having any need to go around saying this word, but then you turn 11, um, or, or, or at whatever age and you start listening to hip hop And you find that among some artists, it really feels like this word is every other word. And even beyond absorbing the cultural messages and memes from from music that kids listen to, the most natural thing in the world to do is to sing along to popular music. People, People very often can't even help themselves but to do this. And like I said, um, there is no excuse for it. Every sensible white kid should know not to do this. They should know better and act better. But obviously, teenagers are, by and large, not the most sensible members of the society in which we live. But that's not what makes this story a story. The story is what happened next. Last year, this video ends up in the hands of a classmate of this girl. And this classmate is of mixed race, but his mother is black, and he is someone who very understandably takes offense to to white kids uh, doing this, to going around and saying this, which according to this story has been happening a lot in this particular high school. So the Times describes what happened next this way. He tucked the video away, deciding to post it publicly when the time was right. Um, you can make of that what you will. When I was a kid, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was still a presence recent enough in American history that people talked about him. And, um, you know, very often you would hear the fact that he had reams of, of blackmail material that he could use to affect the people he needed to manipulate. And needless to say, these profiles of J Edgar Hoover were not laudatory. This is one of the reasons we, we basically consider J Edgar Hoover a historical villain. 
But this is um, what the teenage boy experienced attending this school and what motivated him to do what he did as told to the Times. The slur, he said, was regularly hurled in classrooms and hallways throughout his years in the Luden, Ludoon, Ludoin, I don't know, County School District. He had brought the issue up to teachers and administrators, but much to his anger and frustration, his complaints had gone nowhere. So based on that paragraph, um, we're talking about a racist school, um, you know, or, or, or a school completely lacking in racial sensitivity by, um, by the people who are saying this word, right? And that may be the case. Uh, whatever the median measure of American high school racial insensitivity is, this school seems to rank above it, um, but it is curious that this boy described the culture of the school that way. Uh, why is that curious? Well, the girl made this video in 2016. Um, then, uh, at the t- at, at a time that the New York Times calls, not once but twice, last school year, the boy in the story came into possession of, of the video and hatched this plan. Um, I find the last school year thing weird. Uh, last school year, um, at the time of, of my recording of this podcast, was the 2019 to 2020 school year. So why don't they just say last spring or spring of 2020 or whatever? I mean, obviously, we know it wasn't 2019 because obviously if it was, the Times would have said last year. But for whatever reason, they obviously want to downplay the notion that receipt of the offending video by this boy was a recent occurrence, which clearly it was. Um, and again, you can make of that what you will. But the Times also says about the period after the recording was made, but before the boy did his thing, the video later circulated among some students at Heritage High School, which the girl and the boy attended, but did not cause much of a stir. So this is my question. How normal is the use of the N-word in this school, and and how unreceptive are teachers, like the boy said? Um, Clearly, this video was provocative enough to be saved and trafficked between high school students for basically all of high school. Um, all of the time that, that these two students were in high school, this, this thing is going around. The boy doesn't even get it until last year, even though it was recorded four years ago. Um, and if this is a school where kids like bandy about the N-word all day long in the hallways or whatever, would it be the case that this video was, was so provocative and, and traded around? I think probably not. I think in that world, it would have just disappeared from Snapchat as quickly as it had appeared without the girl's peers taking much interest in it, let alone saving it and and trading it around, but whatever. Um, anyway, then this year happens, uh, 2020, right? And, uh, George Floyd happens and what you might call a second wave black lives matter happens. And the girl does this, uh, according to the times, uh, in a public Instagram post, this girl urged people to protest, donate, sign a petition, rally, do something in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. But of course, uh, the boy is already waiting to strike at that point. 
And he does. He told the Times he had been waiting until the girl picked a college, which, yeah, is objectively a fucked up thing to do because he wanted to torpedo her admission to college using this video. And that's exactly what he did do. Ultimately, she was forced out of the University of Tennessee over this video. And now um, she attends some community college. And there are more fucked up details to this story, but I won't bother with them. What I've told you is really all the meat here. And you can decide for yourself whether this is a story worthy of appearing in the country's foremost newspaper. Uh, a story that has since gone worldwide with international outlets reporting on it. But here's one more thing the New York Times had to say on the subject if you access it digitally. It's, it's, not, it's technically not a part of this news story, but this text appears. To read more stories on race from the New York Times, sign up here for our race-related newsletter. Um, newspapers are extremely thirsty for stories like this right now because obviously something called the fucking race-related newsletter is not going to populate itself, right? Um... So that's another thing. Make of that what you will. Uh, but there's plenty of finger pointing to go around here. Um, the girl should never have done what she did. And she was doubly a fool for posting a video of it. And the boy. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry. It's just very J. Edgar Hoover-esque to be running around filling your hard drive with compromat to leverage over your enemies. If you don't know the reference... Uh, Kompromat is Russian for compromising material, i.e. blackmail material, and it's historically been very popular in Russia and elsewhere, I suppose, but they're the culture that has a neat word for it. So kids make mistakes. They do things that, uh, as they would say, are totally cringe, whether that's deploying the N-word or reporting some classmate publicly um, for doing so and shaming them, right? And make no mistake, uh, that's what you are looking at here. We are in the midst of, of a full-on um, cultural revolution underway with things like this, down to the struggle sessions wherein alleged perpetrators must confess their own sins, uh, real or imagined, all, all, no, all to no avail anyway, because there, there is no mercy for these transgressions. Um, the enemies of the movement must be purged, right? And the youth always play an important role in a movement like that. The Revolutionary Youth Brigade has been activated and deployed to Instagram. Um, and please do not get me wrong. I believe that Black Lives Matter. Of course I do. I think police abuses are disgusting. And the deaths related to police abuses are outrageous and demand reform. I, I've outlined exactly what I believe needs to happen to facilitate change in that area on this podcast previously. My ideas are not original. They, these are not proprietary ideas, um, but they are in fact supported by millions of people. I think we need to end qualified immunity, but more importantly, end the drug war. Um, keep the police and fund them even. Uh, because society, it turns out, is pretty fucked without the police, um, particularly in modern life. One thing you're going to see this year is some really surprising data about violent crime. The, the numbers have not been completely crunched yet, but I assure you from the data I've seen, you will see an increase in murder this year 
that looks like a tsunami breaking over the country. It could be uh, the largest year-over-year increase in American history in murder, but we will just have to wait and see about that. Um, you know, so I'm not a big fan of um, abolishing the police, as as a lot of people my age are, right? Um, now, like I said, black lives matter, absolutely, but let's be honest about how inherently manipulative it is. it is whenever this question is asked. Do you think black lives matter? Uh, this is not different than saying to a person, aren't you pro-life? How could you not be pro-life? Are you anti-life? Because we know uh, pro-life doesn't mean anything. It's just a euphemism for being anti-abortion. And its rejoinder, pro-choice, is equally a euphemism because a person offering it is is actually just pro the choice of abortion, right? Pro-choice is just the abortion version of all lives matter. It is just another euphemism, right? It's a statement not meant to convey the meaning of the actual words as they would read to you at face value outside of this context. But forget that. Forget all of that. Um, Forget the context of this moment. None of this is about that. Not an ounce of this story that appeared in the New York Times is about police abuses or the current state of, of public political action. Uh, at its heart, this is a story about some fucking teenagers. Uh, the girl and the guy and, and her video where she says the N-word like a fool and, and do note she has apologized. This girl clearly regrets the incident and doesn't endorse the behavior she exhibited during its short duration. Um, and the boy, he told the New York Times he has no regrets. Um, he said, if I never posted that video, nothing would have ever happened. Um, and this is the last thing that the Times writer, Dan Levin, puts in the story at the very end. And I quote, and because the Internet never forgets, the clip will always be available to watch. I'm going to remind myself you started something. He said with satisfaction, you taught someone a lesson, unquote. And uh, that that last part, that is the boy speaking. Clearly, this story um, is different from a similar one that appeared in the Washington Post not long ago. That story was was almost like a, a laudatory hagiography of some similar snitches, albeit with with no news value because um, there, there was no college that had forced out the offender at, at the center of that story. It was just purely um, a, a navel-gazing exercise about the Washington Post and uh, the Halloween party of one of its cartoonists. But this is different. Um, the effect of this New York Times story is, and, and will remain, a net negative for both of these teen- teenagers. Um and both of whose first and last names it uses where I have said the boy and the girl in this podcast, uh, I have editorialized. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to perpetuate that by, by naming their names here. Uh, the New York times, um, on the subject of granting anonymity to people, the New York times either denies granting anonymity to people or it grants anonymity to people um, like it did this week uh, for the Twitter user who exposed the, the Hillary Baldwin scandal. It, it granted to that person anonymity when they said they were they were in fear Alec Baldwin would punch them in the face. Um, this is a person who's never met I, either Alec or Hillary Baldwin before, presumably. 
Um, but it depends on the context. Just as recently, the New York Times said it did not grant an anonymity to people in the case of um, uh, of, a, of an allegedly offensive blogger. That, that, I believe, was during the summer. It really depends on the context of which week you ask the New York Times about it and what answer it, it is in their uh, self-interest to offer. But that, that's not the point. Um, I don't mean to harp on that. Um, I, I, I mean to look at the larger point of, of what happened in this story and the effect the story itself has. Is this the society of the future? Does this feel futuristic to you? Can you imagine that if we still had World's Fairs, um, that you would go to the World's Fair and you would take the tour of the living room of the future or something and some pitch man would say, this is the internet where you can live out your days paying for the most inconsequential sins of your youth for all the days of your life. Uh, is that the America that you picture yourself striving to create? I would, I, I would urge you to think very hard about it. Do, do you have kids? Um, if you don't, imagine that you will, right? Can you rely on and trust your kids or your hypothetical kids to go their whole entire lives without making a, a faux pas, an embarrassing or, or tactless remark in a social situation that, that happens to be captured in vivid color on cell phone video? Do you want to go to bed at night worrying about the possibility of that happening? Um, think about it. Think about what you want. Because the truth is that we can probably build any sort of America that you want. We can make the consequences of saying the wrong thing, whatever you want them to be, up to and including national scorn and humiliation of a sort that haunts a person for the rest of their days, all the days of their life, like I said. And if you get the reference, you should know that it isn't coincidental or merely an expression of my own penchant for rhetorical flair. Um, something very religious is happening here, but again, whatever America you want, choose, make the choice. We have the technology to build it, but, um, that can be a decidedly Faustian bargain as many people throughout history who believed that they had finally arrived at, at the perfect answer of what a society should be have learned. Um, so think it through because once we build that America, it's a very tough thing to tear down or to even scale back or even temper where it is so that it can't grow to have a scope beyond what you envision today. That's not the pattern these things follow. Um, that, that's not, uh, the death, the destiny of, of utopias ordinarily. And for these two kids, um, I promise you that the future is grim, um, after this New York times story. And I honestly do not know whose future is grimmer. Um, the girl, even if people do forgive her or whatever, will present a potential liability to any employer that might want to hire her. Even if they think her blameless, which I think most will not, um, they'll know that an army of trolls uh, who want to punish her for the rest of her life will target that employer to demand her firing, right? Um, that's how big a story this became this week. And this concept uh, will even apply to potential romantic partners. Um 
you know, a, a person wanting to, to date this young woman will have to deal with the fact that her life just necessarily invites attention over this thing that happened when she was 15. Um, in some sense, she'll have to live her life in secret. Probably she'll change her name, but a lot of sick fucks will track her down anyway. And maybe you're somebody who thinks that's deserved for her transgression, right? Um, here's the thing that's less clear, I think, from uh, the New York Times story. I don't think they really pay enough attention to this aspect of things. Um, that scenario applies equally to the boy in the story. He's every bit as famous as the girl and, um, and every bit as outrageous to a certain kind of online extremist, maybe more so because, um, those alt-right Fox and other similar actors are, are truly sick and evil. Just ask those Sandy Hook parents. Um, his life, this kid is basically as over as hers is even with the employer thing, maybe more so imagine that it's 10 years from now. Imagine some sick fucks still make somewhat credible threats to murder this kid on a regular basis, right? Um, imagine his DM box is still filling up with these things in the year 2031, right? Would you feel safer or less safe to be the person asked to share a cubicle with this kid? Um, or to be the client who is asked to transact business with him? The people who he sends his eventual resume to are going to be cognizant of this reality. So reputational harm, um, it is real and it is often unfair. One reputation that it would be pretty hard to harm would be that of the Westwood Lodge Hospital, the mental institution I mentioned earlier as the one I checked myself into close to 20 years ago. You can't check in there today. Uh, it was permanently closed by the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health in 2017. At that time, police and the district attorney were investigating allegations of sexual assault there, but these were only the most recent in a long history of scandals. Patients had died at Westwood Lodge. Uh, most unforgivably, there were allegations about problems in their children's unit. And none of it surprised me. Uh, I found it an absolutely horrible place. I had been there about an hour before I was ready to solemnly swear I would never consider suicide again and I would behave myself for the rest of my life. Uh, but they didn't let me out for another 10 days anyway uh, after that. It was my first up-close and personal experience with the sad flaws of mental health treatment, which by and large are, are traceable uh, to the allegedly well-meaning professionals who work in places like that. You hear a lot about uh, resources and budgeting in mental health um, or behavioral health, as it's often called today. And all of that is true. The system is forever lacking in these things. But the part that people don't perceive is the effect that that lack of resources has on the people who work there. A lot of people enter a field like social work wanting to save the world. Uh, it's, which is an admirable dream, right? Uh, I, I never shared it, but alas, uh, certainly an, an admirable thing for a young person to want to set out in the world and do. But anyway, people get out of college with this idealistic view, and after a short time working in this field, that, I, that idealism is shattered. Uh, they realize that they, in fact, cannot save the world, and for many, the effect that, that, that this has is to so disillusion them that 
that they evolve into a person who will permit nearly anything. I can't save the world, so why try? I'm, I'm just here until I can collect a pension, right? Um, a, a lot of people work in this field with, with that cynical of a view. Um, this is hardly true of every person nor of every facility, but it is real and, um, it is rampant and, and it is an exponential problem there. Uh, the people acting this way contribute to the new further disillusionment of those who follow in their footsteps and, and enter the field after them. Right. And after enough years of this, you get a place as fucked up as Westwood Lodge. And it's funny because you see exactly the same phenomenon in societies that try to make any kind of serious beginning on any kind of halfway Marxist regime, um, like the ones that create cultural revolutions by that name or any other. But that is another story. In Massachusetts, the most extreme skeptics of the local bureaucracy would tell you that this story is actually um, about both phenomenons at play, right? Um but in, so I didn't like it there. I, I'm a biased critic of the Westwood Lodge with the worst kind of agenda and acts in need of grinding. I can admit that. Um, I, I can admit that. I, I will say that. Right. But it was not all bad there. At least one person there was very kind to me. I don't remember uh, the name of this guy who worked there and was nice to me, but he was from Africa, right? He was an immigrant. Uh, I believe he was from Nigeria, but I could be misremembering that. But nevertheless, this, this guy was black, right? As we would say in America, uh, he was not a doctor. I, I think he was some kind of graduate student there to, to complete some kind of necessary clinical training. Um, but he worked nights, and um, if you saw him doing his job in a movie from the 1960s, uh, you might call him an orderly, right? But that doesn't really reflect the way these places operate today. Um, I found this guy to be very wise and, and very eager to be helpful. I, I honestly trusted that he believed it when he spoke about how people could be better and, and not need to be in a place like Westwood Lodge anymore. I, I admired this guy as a breath of sanity in the sea of madness I had chosen to enter in that facility. But it was a particular event where this guy really earned my respect and admiration, right? Um, we were allowed outside to smoke cigarettes every two hours in Westwood Lodge. Um, you could smoke up to two cigarettes during these breaks of approximately 10 to 15 minutes, and everybody did. Um, so one night, maybe around 9 o'clock, uh, they let us out for our last smoke break of the evening. Now, there's another guy there, uh, a patient, who was not pleasant to be around and uh, call him Jerry, right? I don't remember his real name and I wouldn't say it if I did, but call him Jerry. Uh, now, whatever Jerry's diagnosis was, um, I could not tell you with, with any precision, but he was definitely delusional. At one point, uh, I heard him tell in utter seriousness uh, a story about how he had gone into the forest and was raped by a bear there, right? Um, you know, he spoke about these events as though he, he believed them and they had happened, right? Uh, now, Jerry, this guy might have been in his 50s, but if you told me he was 70 years old, I would have easily believed it. He was um, an old white guy, kind of on the heavy side, who wore an old U.S. Army field jacket that was, that was a little too tight for him. And he talked a lot about Vietnam, the war and um, what went on there. 
uh, I sized this Jerry up pretty quick as uh, one of these men of a particular generation whose mind had been bent until it broke in that war. And um, the rest of his life was just doomed to various holds in places like this. Um, I, I decided that the safest thing to do was to stay away from Jerry. So I did. Um, genuinely, he scared me, right? Um, but I found out pretty quick that Jerry had never been in Vietnam. All of this was a protracted delusion up to and including the U.S. Army field jacket, um, as was most of what came out of his mouth, right? Uh, so that night, last smoke break, we're out there. And uh, the Nigerian guy, the, the guy who I, I, I admired a lot, says to us, you know, that's it. Uh, last call is over. Back to the locked unit. Uh, and then it's going to be lights out. So, um, you know, as instructed, we put our cigarettes in the can and, and we started to congregate to be let back into the building. But not Jerry. Uh, he stands about like 20 feet away from us and makes clear he is in no mood to come back inside. So the Nigerian guy says, come on, Jerry, that's it. Lights out. Jerry won't come. So, uh, so they let him have another cigarette. They indulge him. Um, and so Jerry smokes that cigarette to its end. And pretty soon we're back to where we started. He will not fucking come back inside. So Nigerian, uh, calls for him again. And I, and I won't imitate him because, uh, I can't do the thick accent that that guy had, but he, but he was very calm, very reasonable in, in asking again that Jerry come back inside but Jerry just won't surrender. He's got his mind made up to fight this war all the way to peace with honor, so to speak. You follow? And uh, so the Nigerian guy calls from one more time. And Jerry says, and I remember this like it was yesterday. I don't have to do what you say, you fucking. And he says it. Uh, he says the N word. And I swear to you to this day, this is probably among the top five ugliest things I have ever witnessed in person in my life to hear a white person deploy that word against a black person in the utmost anger. There's simply nothing else as, as uniquely offensive to one's sensibilities as that, at least if that one is me, right? Um, I don't know what even would else would be in the top five. I suppose hearing the sound of a friend's father beating his mother when I was a kid, uh, hiding in their basement with my friend, that would be on that list. And maybe it should be much worse on that list because it involves actual violence. Um, you know, but, but it didn't feel that way. Right. Um, in reality to experience these events, uh, hearing Jerry say that it felt every bit as much like, uh, an assault. To perceive. Um, it felt violent, right? And um, the Nigerian guy did not flinch. Uh, it rolled right off his back. I don't know why. Maybe because he wasn't from the U.S., right? Um, maybe it didn't have as much meaning for him. But, uh, but it had meaning for me when I watched this unfold. Um, the Nigerian guy very calmly he radioed. He called for backup. And, uh, you know, the situation got uglier from there. It got physical. It was every bit like something you'd see in those movies. Um, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest shit. Uh, they put hands on him. They wrestled Jerry to the ground. Um, that stay in Westwood Lodge, that was the first time I ever heard of Thorazine, which you can look up if you're curious. But the Cliff's Notes version is that it's a tranquilizer. And 20 years later, I, I promise you, uh, I can still feel 
the absolute gut punch I felt hearing Jerry say that word in that way, in that place. So I know, I know how ugly and inhumane and how evil that word can be in a very intrinsic way. And um, I wish that that were different. I really do. And honestly, I'm not a big um, words have power person. If you've ever heard that platitude, uh, I don't think a word has any more power than the listener invests in it. Um, and I, and I think that every person is capable of making a miserly investment in every word, but God, do we invest a lot of power in that word? Me included. (sighs) So that's it. Uh, that's the show for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Our music as always is matzah by Frogbelly and symphony. Please check them out on Bandcamp and at frogbellyandsymphony.com. You can always leave your comments in the form of a voicemail or a text to the Cat Sounds 24-hour voicemail hotline at 949-484-9724. That's it. Uh, Happy New Year to all and to all a good night.